0: Welcome to the DevReady Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Uh, Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Jordan Green. Jordan, if anyone doesn't know, um, he is the founder and president at Melbourne Angels. um, And I'll let Jordan bring in a bit of detail around that. um, Jordan, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you taking time. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So we met at a Melbourne Angels event, had a bit of a conversation around some AI and technology and where things might be moving. Um, And I thought, yes, it'd be great to share your story once I I heard a bit more about it. Now, take me back. You've been investing and an angel effectively for, I think I recall, 20, 30 years. Is that about right? Uh, Yeah, I I made my
1: first angel investment when I was um, doing my own startup in Silicon Valley in the 1990s
0: so about 25 26 years ago yeah Yeah. startups um what is it about startups that fascinates you because i find there's a certain breed of people that hang around this sort of area what is it about startups that sort of engages you a number of different things i guess Uh, i've
1: everything i've done has always been on on the frontier whether it's a technology frontier or an economic frontier but uh, and I've also, ever since I was a kid, I, I've been starting things. Starting organizations, you know, at school, um, at, at university, uh, starting clubs, starting social groups. Uh, and um, and I the only sort of, when I graduated, I, so I did electronic engineering, and when I graduated, I got a job with IBM, uh, but I was only there for about eight months before I headed off for a postgraduate research fellowship overseas. And ever since then, um, I've always been starting new businesses. It just sort of happened. Uh, and it's got a lot to do with having had early on a very strong focus and activity around bleeding edge technology. Uh, so you know, I was starting what today people call tech startups um, long before it was fashionable. And also when it was real technology. I mean, a lot of tech startups today are using technology. You know, they're building things with software. But they're not actually creating technology. Um, back when I was doing it, whether you were hardware or software, and usually in those days you had to be a bit of both, um, you were actually creating new technology. Uh, so, of course, the internet didn't exist <laughs> um, when I first started. Yes,
0: yes, that would have been right. <laughs> oh, after I started yes. building companies was in the 80s. Um, no internet back then, no. No, <laughs> no, no.
1: So, yeah, so I've always enjoyed the, the uh, you know, the Push to do something, change to, to change the world for the better, uh, to to leverage the technology capabilities to to do things that make life easier and better for people. Um, so yeah, that's it, it's just exciting. Uh,
0: you know, living with the world of constant change, it's continuously evolving a lot more rapidly as as, as we go into twenty twenty three. It's always moving, isn't it? Yep. If you take us back to your first startup, what what was that? What was that all about? And some it would have been some sort of cutting edge tech, if you, as you describe it. So what was uh, that when you started?
1: Well, yes and no. So the the first company that I the first company that I co-founded, and and you pretty much always co found I mean, there's very little that anyone can do entirely on their own. Uh, was actually an engineering services company uh, okay. here yep. in Melbourne. Uh, but what we did was apply the very latest technologies. So I was I had one of the very first licenses for AutoCAD in Australia, the very first version of, of what they called AutoCAD International. And for those who don't know, AutoCAD is a computer-aided drafting tool uh, made by a company called Autodesk. Uh, it has dominated the sort of the low end and mid market for a, a very, very long time, 30, 40 years. Uh, and uh, so I was introducing computer aided design into um, sort of heavy engineering and, and industrial engineering activities in Australia. Uh, we then introduced a number of other technologies. Um, we brought in uh, thermal imaging. Now, for those who are old enough, there used to be an airline called Ansett Airlines. And I still in- remember that. <laughs> So I introduced to them the ability to scan the, the wings of the aircraft using a thermal camera while the passengers were getting on and off. The reason that's important is when a, when a plane goes up to, a, to operating altitude, the wings are made up of a series of honeycomb um, compartments. And okay. the moisture in there, when you go up into the, the atmosphere, the moisture in there freezes. And of course, when moisture freezes, it expands. And of course, when the plane comes down, it melts again. But this constant freezing and melting is a constant expansion and contraction, puts stress on, on the metal in the plane. And up until we introduced this system, the standard way of dealing with that was to have scheduled maintenance, preventative maintenance. So every so many hours of operation, the plane would come into the hangar and various bits and pieces would get pulled apart and either inspected and or repaired or replaced on a preventative basis. What I was able to do is bring in a, a thermal camera uh, and scan the wings by walking underneath them while the plane's at the air bridge with the passengers getting on and off, which meant a lot of the ice was still in the wings. So it was very it's easy with thermal um, imaging to see where the stress points were. And so that would all be recorded. Here's another one for you on videotape, VHS videotape.
0: Uh, good old yeah. video, VHS, yes, <laughs> and then
1: we deliver that videotape to the maintenance engineers, and they could actually then, in effectively in near real time, they could inspect the plane and they could know when it was going to need maintenance, which meant that maintenance became um, responsive rather than preventative, uh, and they could time it better, which all adds up to fewer accidents and and more cost-efficient maintenance. Uh, only using parts when you need to use parts, but definitely using them when you do need, knowing that you need to use them. Um, so things like that. So we did that. We also introduced with that same technology, scanning the electrical switchboards in in ships and particularly in ocean-going um, oil tankers and container ships. So they have a, a great big electrical switchboard down in the bowels of the ship powered electricity is generated from running the diesel engines that, that turn generators, that generate electricity. And every every period, I forget the exact period, but you know, every couple of years or something, the insurers require a complete inspection of the electrical system to make sure it's all going to keep working okay. To do that, you bring the ship alongside at a, at a pier and you go get a super long uh, extension cable and plug the ship into the shore because you have to turn the engines off because you need to be working on the electrical switchboards, which means they can't have electricity in them. So you need, but you need lights and air conditioning and all that sort of stuff. So basically you plug the ship into the shore and run the systems from from electrical power on the shore. And then you bring a whole army usually of, of um, apprentices with a few senior electricians down into the bows of the ship. And they all start opening all these cabinets and looking at everything and, and testing using torque wrenches to make sure the bolts holding the bus bars, which are the big copper bars that conduct the um, the high energy electricity, uh, making sure everything is right. Problem with that is they're very complex environment and you have to reach in with these tools to check things and measure things and tighten things. And the likelihood is you put on as many errors as you as you fix in, in getting into yeah, this environment. Uh, so but you don't know anything that's wrong until you finally get everybody back, close everything up, turn the ship on again, and then find out what's working, what isn't working. What we did is we said, well, actually, when it's all operating, the electricity itself gives us the best indication because if there's a loose connection or a bad connection, there'll be a hotspot. So um, we were able to come in while the ship was all running, while it's you know, doing its ordinary thing, sitting alongside loading, unloading, whatever, and we could scan with the thermal camera and then show the ship's engineers how it's all working and where the problems might be, which again meant that if they needed to fix something right away, they knew it. And if they didn't, they could schedule it. And if everything was working fine, they had evidence of that too. So the insurers liked it because it actually gave them better information. The, um, the engineers liked it because it was a lot simpler than bringing in an army of, of people and Delaying and of course the ship operators loved it because it was much more cost effective. Um, yeah,
0: but it would have been bringing in the whole uh a herd of people yeah. into move bolts around and tie things up and yes, six right. things are probably re- reduce the amount of new errors. And
1: yeah. the other thing I did in that company, which I, I apologize for right now, is um, uh, my, my partner got uh, in the very very early days, the first introduction of speed cameras. Uh, or maybe even just red light cameras, I can't remember which one it was, but, um, and my partner got photographed and he went to get the photo to see what it was all about. And he came back and the photo was of his car, but it was all pretty blurry. You couldn't really read the number plate. You couldn't really see it was him driving. So he gave it to me, cause I'd been mucking around with, with some um, speech systems and image processing systems on computers. Now again, on computers, You've got to think back, this is PCAT, if that means anything to anyone. It's the second generation of personal computer. Doesn't mean anything to me. You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. so it's a very long time ago, um, the, the 8086 chip, the original uh, 8086 chip, and uh, I was able to process it and clear it all up and make it all crystal clear so that you could see absolutely it was him driving and it was his number plate. And he took that back to the police and showed them what could be done. And uh, he still had to pay his fine. Um, but of course, after that, the, the, I had hoped that the police would contract with us to do that work, but uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but I was instrumental in showing them what was possible. So sorry, <laughs> sorry to everybody out there <laughs> listening
0: in. <laughs> um, so that yep. was that was the beginning, I guess. Yeah, it looks like you've been on that, like you said, cutting edge of tech, and even just introducing it in smarter ways, that's how might we use technology, because um, that's ideating on what is there and what's available. And that's, I think you go to the point of um, a lot of, and te- you mentioned it earlier in the conversation, where um, a lot of team companies are using the technology that exists and startups are using technology that exists and leveraging it. That's a similar thing to probably what you did back then and looking at how you might iterate from it, evolve a process and create new value effectively.
1: And if I, if I, I'll tie that back to the startup thing. So that company was acquired by um, a, a well established electrical contracting company here in Melbourne who needed an engineering capability. And they acquired it because of all this leading edge technology work that I was doing. So basically, you know, if I, if I quote the, the CEO of the acquirer, you know, we bought this company because of you. Um, now that was, that was very nice. And that led to a lot of other interesting work. For instance, I installed the very first um, digital scoreboard at the MCG. And the reason I did that is because it was run, it was a, made by Mitsubishi, and it was run by a computer that was actually the same computer that was used on ships to run what they call the loading computer that that managed how you loaded things into the ship because when you got a big cargo ship, if you don't load the cargo properly, balanced, then you'll break the ship. So there's actually a computer that helps decide, we'll load this much here and that much there and all that. So that was the same computer that was that Mitsubishi used. It was a Mitsubishi computer and it was the same one they used for their scoreboards. So I got to install the very first digital scoreboard at, uh, at the MCG, um, which was... Quite an interesting hanging experience. Off, hanging off the lights.
0: That would be nice and high.
1: <laughs> well, inside. We were inside yeah, that giant yes, construction.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure if it's still there. It. but uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's probably evolved a few times over by now. But, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. have uh, changed those stadiums and um, ripped them apart a couple of times in the past 20, 30 years. Yes, to it, nap yeah. in someone's pocket probably. At the yeah. Moment. Well, I mean, back yes. then it was a digital scoreboard, but the uh-huh. the lights were still individual lamps. And um, there it wasn't oh, a screen. Okay, so no. yes, got it, got it. Yes, yeah, so the individual bulbs, so that would, yes. Yeah, and they were sense. bulbs, not even LEDs. Yep. They, they were
1: yep. high, yep. high power like tungsten. primitive bulbs, so. seven segment display. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's sort of, you know, and that evolved. Um, and then that company got bought by a Dutch based multinational. Um, and once again, they were looking for an Australian company to buy to get them into the. Uh, Australian, well this is very topical I guess today, into the Australian Submarine Project. So that's how long ago it was, the last time we were thinking about building submarines. Um, and they needed an Australian engineering company to give them access to bid for that project. Uh, so they bought us and once again I was told by the um, the man doing the acquisition and and then later by the, uh, the um, vice-president and president of the company that the decision to buy us versus Others that they'd looked at was the engineering team that I ran um, and the sort of work that we were doing. Um, so, so I I co-founded a company. I worked with the technology and I went through in that instance two acquisitions. Um, so
0: that was sort of like it's, giving yeah, me a taste a, a of all, all of this. Stuff. Yeah, it would have been a good taste for you to go through that process. And was it always about Acquisition or exiting, or was it just happened? Did it fall on that? Well, you sort of no, at that in those moment? days,
1: I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking about, um, you know, about exiting or was selling the company. The the um, the the Melbourne Electrical Contracting Company itself had, in fact, just been bought for the first time in sixty years just before they bought us, and the CEO of that was a, a great mentor to me. He was a he was a really nice guy very fatherly um, very smart businessman had previously run australia's largest engineering company a company called comming and um, so he he really sort of shepherded me through that experience and taught me some of what was going on Uh, i wasn't looking to be part of sell no no one in those days no one i knew thought about only sitting a company business. and yeah, selling yeah. companies and exits, was it, it wasn't that should... wasn't the nature of the world. Uh, I, I'm sure there were amongst you know the more mature people like the CEO of this company. I'm sure, he was thinking about that sort of stuff, but it wasn't the way it is today. Certainly not around startups. You have to build a real business with very substantial revenues and profits and scalable markets and all the things you're supposed to have before anyone would even look at putting money into your company. It wasn't um, common knowledge, really. Well, but if you skip ahead there. to when I went to uh, went to Silicon Valley in the 90s, I left in the early 90s, and there basically wasn't any venture capital in Australia, so I hadn't really heard about it. When we're in, when I was in Silicon Valley, we were bootstrapped and profitable. Uh, one of San Jose Mercury News' 50 fastest growing companies, and we used to have these guys who'd like come and knock on the door and say, "Hi, I want to give you some money." We'd say, "Great, what do you want to buy?" Because we sell all these software products. We, we can sell the computers, but we don't really want to. We want you to buy them from our partners. But what do you want? I don't know. we just want to give you some money. What are you talking about? We sell software. Uh, no, no, we just want to give you some money. Go away, you're an idiot. Go away. Right?
0: We, nobody... Take some money. It was that... <laughs> That's a bit different to Australia, isn't it? Well, it was yes.
1: even a bit different there. Um, we were a very international team. Uh, so um, there was... And, and there was only in the sort of the core original team, there was only one person... Uh, from California. It was actually born and bred in Silicon Valley, which is pretty unusual, really. Um, but everyone else there were there was a um, one of the co-founders was from Oregon, uh, and we had engineers from Scotland and and England. Um, and uh, uh, we had a we had a guy from Canada, and so it was very sort of international team. And as a result, none of us had any experience exposure or even had heard the word venture capital previously. So in the early days we didn't know who those guys were we just thought they were crazy um, and then a few years later while we're, we're doing quite well and we got an unsolicited offer to invest in the company or in fact to buy the company and like any unsolicited offer it was a low ball offer but it got us thinking we knew that wasn't we knew the company was worth more than that so it got us thinking and we said oh well let's have a look now this is the 1990s in the 1990s the standard sort of exit was to do a listing probably on the NASDAQ, but maybe on the New York Stock Exchange, but to do a listing. So we started looking into that and we discovered an interesting thing that people don't really want to um, invest in your company or buy your company unless somebody has already invested in it. It's it's a fairly natural sort of thing to understand. Well, money follows money,
0: right? Uh, so, well, yeah. uh,
1: nobody wants to be the first one to take the risk, right? Yeah. So if someone else has taken the risk, that makes it seem like a better idea so we went back and decided we'd take some venture capital and since we could choose we pick and choose uh, we took venture capital from from three investors one was a small partnership that doesn't exist uh, anymore and the other two were were um, iconic names there was Arthur Rock and and Bank Boston uh, and right around that time is actually when I came home because I thought this is what Australia needs Australia has, really creative people who do wonderful things, very clever, a lot of initiative, do it all on the smell of an oily rag. Um, They need people who can help guide them to success and can inject a bit of money as well. And that's what venture capital is most supposed to be. Uh, So I came home to get involved with venture capital in Australia. So when I came back late in the the 90s, um, there was some what I call embryonic venture capital Uh, Most of the people running the firms were the wrong people, but for the perfectly understandable reason that happens in every single country, the first generation of VC is funded by institutions. The people at the top of the institutions are, in our case, a superannuation fund manager. So when they're looking around, and they're experienced at putting money into private equity funds and, and things like it's that. It's a
0: completely different world that they're looking at, not startup ventures. But what oh, they venture, yes. saw was venture capital fund manager. Oh, that's yes. nice. Like me. I'm a fund manager. Yes, correct. But they look at consistent returns.
1: So they did the, yeah. it's natural. It's a perfectly human thing to do. They picked money managers, they picked people like them. And sadly, those are never or almost never. I mean, it's not to say that's it's impossible to go from that background to being a good VC, not at all, but it's not the it's not the preferred background for being a good venture capitalist. The money is just the grease to the wheels. You're supposed to be doing a whole lot of other stuff. It's the intellectual capital contribution. Um, so anyway, so I came back and uh, I, there, there's a whole bunch of stories, but I did end up co-founding a venture capital fund uh, with the goal of, showing that venture capital could be done faster and better than it was being done in Australia at the time, which which we achieved. So we had a small privately backed venture capital fund. We ran it for five years. We sold the whole portfolio. We delivered a, an eight times return to
0: our investors and, um, and of course, Australia being Australia. You've done, you done very well. Not many VCs make money, so <laughs> you don't that So much.
1: that and, and some of the quirks of Australia, um, that very success made it hard for us to raise a second institutional fund not that we didn't try but um but at the same time i was looking for something else how do you help the founders who have the vision and the passion and the dedication to give it their all um how do you help them and and find a bit of money to help them progress without all the all the parasites in the middle of the system all the investment banking activity etc and lo and behold that's called angel investing and although at that stage I'd already made um, a couple of angel or more than a couple of angel investments, I, I hadn't really known that's what it was called like most of us, uh, certainly late last century. It was just something that we did. We, it wasn't a label. So um, I decided to start the angel, organized angel investor community in Australia. Uh, I found four other guys around the country who agreed. We set up a, a roof body of the Australian Association of Angel Investors as a sort of a seminal influence. We all set up our own angel groups in in different states and territories and over the next four or five years that community grew from the the initial four angel groups to about um, about 19 angel groups well 17 angel groups Um, and understandably not all of them survive for for a variety of reasons Uh, but that's that's how the angel group community got started in Australia And, and so I spent a lot of time leading that and you know, facilitating and lobbying government and building international relationships and running education programs. Uh, And the AI itself, um, again, one of the sad things about Australia is we tend to have a habit of fragmenting our our ecosystems. Uh, And that started to happen, and it was no longer possible for me to keep the AI going in a practical sense. Uh, but then again, it had served its purpose, and not everything has to last forever. So um, yeah, not I, everything does, does it? No? <laughs> no. So I, um, I I shut it down after giving it a good yeah. solid run, and yeah. and focused back on um, Melbourne Angels, which has <laughs> you know, has been one of the the longest running and most active groups in the country. Uh, and then, because I always wanted it to be a thing of its own, not not just about me. I started a few years ago implementing a a succession model, a succession plan. So, as of nearly two years ago now, I stopped being the president of Melbourne Angels. I'm I'm still called the president emeritus, but but um, uh, Paul Barron took over as president, uh, but on a different model. So it wasn't about trying to find someone who's going to spend the next twenty years, giving it their all, doing it. It's about building a more sustainable model. Uh, And. uh, and so that's that's where we're at. So now I'm I'm a, a, sort of a, an active member of the group, uh, but I'm not I'm not formally part of uh, the leadership team. Uh, the one thing I basically still do is I still do the training because that's programs that that I've developed and delivered to angel groups all over Australia,
0: and and um, New Zealand and Asia. And if anyone is uh, fortunate enough to go out and see Jordan, definitely worth it. I'll um, say investment thesis sort of talk that you did. And yeah, it's quite fascinating the way you, you think and structure it. And um, yeah, you just your depth and breadth of knowledge is yeah quite a lot compared to well, many other people that I see that are trying to jump into the space. So it's definitely a good resa- resource if you want to you know, hear from uh, Jordan and the Melbourne Angels group.
1: Well, thank you for that. And and yes, all of the training courses are open to everybody. We you know, we believe that it's if everybody gets to learn together, then you get rid of the misinformation and you get rid of the friction and everybody will end up spending more time on building businesses and less time on doing silly things around transactions because startups and and startup investing are not investment banking. They are not transaction focused. So if everything you do is about what's happening in the transaction, you're probably going to fail as an investor.
0: Yes, so generally at an angel level, um, it's that early that they're Businesses of free revenue, they may just have a MVP if that. Um, so it's very, it's more from the taking. You're investing in the the team, well, you're the investing people. the team, the idea, the concept, um, as well as more the upside of it, right? So, but I think that bears back into some of the the lessons I learned in the investment thesis. And it's about the person um, who are you investing in, and what's important to you as an investor. So it depends which hat you're wearing um, in the. In the world of startups what it's probably a very difficult question but what's maybe what's your investment thesis what's important to you in that space that might be a better way to frame the question i was going to come up with um, what's important to you as to who you're investing into and i think cutting-edge technology may have something to do with it but um yeah what's what's those key things that are important to you when you look at a startup that you're considering investing into
1: so I mean, there's there's always a mix of things, and each each case brings its own blend. Uh, but to me, um, certainly the people are always important. I, I have to I have to have a good feeling about the people. I have to trust them. Now, um, you know, I've got all these stories about these really good little startups where during the course of due diligence, uh, the the founders lied to me, um, and I, I don't. And I'm not it's not a, a huge egregious lie. I mean, a good example was uh, halfway through due diligence. The, the two founders changed their story about the terms that they wanted. So I said, well, okay, that's, you know, we can talk about that. But um, where are you getting this advice? Oh no, no, we're not getting any advice. We just came up with this ourselves. And that didn't make sense. I mean, they'd, they'd never they'd never mentioned any of it before. They hadn't demonstrated any understanding or awareness of that particular issue before. I didn't think it was a big issue for their company, so I hadn't bothered raising it. Um, and now, all of a sudden, they're putting it front and center. And it was all about control. Okay. Uh, and that usually means there's somebody giving them advice. And I just wanted them to tell me who, so I knew who I'm dealing with. Uh, you know, or my dad's giving us advice, or, or we, we met this lawyer, or we've got this accountant, or whatever it might be. Uh, and I can understand... I can have an intellectual appreciation that the first time I asked, they didn't feel comfortable saying, I don't really understand. I don't understand the need to lie. I mean, the truth does not really a major thing it. to share
0: that. Yeah, it's not... <laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> yes. can,
1: I can understand confusion and an apprehension. So I sort of let it slide and we went a bit further. But in the course of the next week or so of, of completing due diligence, I asked them three times the same question, each time they came up with this new piece of input that they'd never had before, and each time they said, oh, no, 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 no one. No. And so I said, all right, well, I'm not going to invest because I believe I will just lose money with people who lie to me. Um, now, I didn't, no, I really liked- Is that a, like,
0: a past experience, Jordan? Um, yes. <laughs> yes.
1: Now, I, <laughs> to be fair, yeah. Yeah, I really liked and still quite like those guys and their business, and it was very close to my heart. It was an electronics engineering hardware business, so a lot of things you know, in the servicing the heavy engineering and mining sector Um, so a lot of things I knew about I understood I thought they had a great chance to be successful at the moment they are being successful but I decided to follow the rules I had learned by experience yes (laughs) uh, and and step away on the other hand there have been times when uh I've just really felt that This was a good person that I really wanted to support, and that I thought they had a good chance of doing good things, uh, and and have let that sway me. None of these things should be on their own. So yeah, the other thing to answer your earlier question, the other things I look for is I much prefer um, some some real technology, something that is creating new value and a barrier to competition. Uh, I'm. In one sense, I'm less concerned about whether it's patentable. Uh, intellectual property Does protection doesn't really is... matter anymore. What well, what's your thoughts on that? So patents are really valuable when you get started because they give you a way to get into the market that's differentiated and protected, and they're really valuable at exit time because big acquirers like patent structures because it, particularly if they're listed companies, because it gives them something to that the whole system understands. Okay. Okay. Yep. In got between the, the two, it's of modest value to have a large patent portfolio, um, but not everything is patentable. Uh, you know, a lot of software no, isn't, isn't really correct. patentable, and yeah. and arguably shouldn't be. Remember, a patent is about telling the world exactly how you do what you do. So if you write, it's sharing real- all your trade yeah. secrets, isn't yeah. it?
0: <laughs> yes. Well, it's certainly
1: sharing all your intellectual property secrets, trade secrets are something yes. a little bit different. But yes, yeah, so, yeah um, intellectual property secrets. So, yes. Good question. And of course, if your if your innovation is all in your business model, then there's probably nothing patentable. But that said, you know, famously, Amazon got a patent on the one click for for making a purchase, which wasn't even a one click. But, uh, it and that held up for a little while. Uh, so. Patents are a strategy that can be employed in the right circumstances and should be employed in the right circumstances. But your best defense in startup world is speed. Whatever you're doing, do it really well and grow really fast. And if you can't do that, then you have a very different set of challenges. So if you look at um, anything in a regulated environment, so pharmaceuticals, and, and medical stuff, it's very hard for them to to move quickly and grow fast because they have to go through all the measured slow yeah. stage gates of a regulated environment. It can take
0: five, seven years. Yeah. It can be a long, long time for some specific, um, especially in surgery. Because it's a well-regulated environment, everybody recognizes the
1: value inflection you get as you pass through each regulatory stage gate. So. So you can be a, a pharmaceutical company and you finish your, your phase one clinical trials and everybody knows that that's a big step in value, you know, three or four times improvement in value because you've achieved that. And there'll be somebody willing to buy that company at that stage. So, and if, if not, you go on and you do your phase two and you succeed there and you get another big step function in value great increase. And again, there'll be somebody ready to buy you at that stage because it's a very regulated environment. It's valid, being validated by the industry. So there are pros and cons to all these things, but I look at the people, um, I look at the at the technology for for strength and differentiation and sustainability. So what's what we call, or what I call, the sustainable unfair competitive advantage. All right? How are you going to be really, really out there in front of the market? And then of course you have to look at the market. I'm not big on consumer plays. Most consumer stuff is about brand building, and
0: that needs tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Of it's a consumer. lot of marketing dollars, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very different thing than um, yeah. B 2 B is pr- much yeah. So the, it's, it's a slower, can be a slower grind though in terms of this, especially getting traction and startup. But once you get some traction, well, it yes can and no.
1: In fact, consumer consumer players are probably the ones where you don't have a lot of time. Right. Yeah, you need to be fast because right? there's so to, many other people out there doing that's a similar right. thing. Uh, yep. I mean, for many, many consumer plays, there is nothing terribly different about what you're doing that can't be copied or isn't already in the market. Uh, I mean, it depends, but and, and you don't always have to be first. So uh, famously, Apple is very successful as a slow follower. Right? Uh, the one thing Apple was first to market with was a thing called the Apple Newton, as the very first, what in those days was called personal digital assistant, which is basically what today we'd call a smartphone without phone functionality. Um, and it wasn't anywhere near as smart, but it was a very clever device. Completely failed the Apple Newton. Completely failed. But every piece of core technology—the the, the touch screen writing technology, the voice technology, the um, the uh, portable uh, or mobile operating system technology—every p- key piece of that technology found itself. A home in other personal digital assistants that were very successful in in the following years. For everything else, Apple has been a very slow follower. You know, the iPod that helped turn the company around. Um, there were 273 other MP3 player products in the market before the iPod
0: came to market. They were never the first, were they? Um, not in any of those. So I think, but they have done a great job of nice. building a consumer franchise. They have, yeah. The Consumer brand.
1: brand that people love and empathise with, and as a result, pay a premium for and are happy to be trapped into their proprietary
0: ecosystem. Trapped. I like how you say that. So you're not an Apple user. <laughs> I said to oh well, <laughs> my very first computer when I was a kid was the very first Apple PC.
1: Um, what was called the Apple II Euro Plus. Euro Plus meaning it was the Apple II outside the United States. Um, uh, so you know, I I was a very early Apple user and and quite a fan of how Apple got started and everything. And I really admire that Apple has achieved a number of key things. So, so Apple is a computer company who have changed their core chip three times, and they're still successful. No other computer company in history has changed it once and succeeded. Everybody who you know, if if um. Apple, if anyone else had said, oh, I'm going to throw out the the uh, Pentium chip and take on the AMD chip, they they all failed. It, it killed their businesses. And that's, that's a long time ago, but um, they did that. And they were also, they, Apple started at a time when all technology was proprietary. All hardware and software was proprietary to the company that built it. And one by one, all of the companies that stayed proprietary died off. Huge names that were icons that these days most people have never heard of, um, like Digital Equipment Corporation, uh, just died off. Apple stayed a wall garden, stayed a proprietary technology business, and survived. It's the last sort of last surviving of its kind, and because it was the last, it was able to turn it into a virtue, and and now to this day, uh, we all know that Apple products always start off embedded in the Apple ecosystem
0: with proprietary
1: interfaces and proprietary software. Over time, of course, they open up and they interoperate because you have to, Um, but it was really uh, Microsoft uh, and Intel, what's called the Wintel partnership, Windows and, and Intel, who moved into the open systems, not open source, but open systems environment. everything is available for everybody to interact with and to work on that's what actually gave the world the whole sort of commercial consumer computer age because now you had a platform that everybody could play with people could build you know accessory cards for, for the ibm pc which you know you can drop the ibm now it's just the pc uh as opposed to the the mac
0: and that changed and that got us to sort of scale, right? So yeah, you had a lot more innovation happening around the whole ecosystem rather than a Mac, which is, yeah, locked down, but they've done very well. But yeah, they like, don't sell yes, specs yes. though, like what well, the no, other computer companies used to. No, everything. It how far? Everything, how
1: much RAM and how, much, how fast is the CPU was the selling point, but Mac has never been focused on that,
0: or they might've been back in the day. It was who really understands that. I think that's the the, the thing that Apple saw, that um, the end consumer, the non-technical, didn't really understand that anyway, um, and then didn't right. sell a product on that. Uh, so, Apple
1: are the, Apple's the company that introduced the word evangelist for their their sales and marketing people, right? And I think that's very telling. Go out there and evangelize. It's not about, you know, as you say, Anthony, it's not about the specs. I mean, they always talked about the specs, but. They were telling you how, oh, but this is the best experience and, and it's the sexiest looking thing and it's just right for the people doing industrial and graphics design or it's just right for the people doing movies or, you know, they they marketed it as a consumer brand and a niche brand product and became the biggest company in the world. So you know, so it's not that I don't like Apple or have anything against Apple uh, at, at all. Uh, I, without Apple as the counterpoint to to the broader ecosystem, uh, neither would exist, right? You have to have this competition and this tension
0: because it keeps everybody moving forward. Keeps everyone everyone innovating, right? Makes sense. What what keeps you going, Jordan? Um, Obviously you've done quite well in your career and um, you've had probably quite an interesting journey. What keeps you going every day? Well, uh,
1: I... It may have already become obvious in the in the last little while that I get quite passionate about the things that I do. Um, so, and that passion is around uh, what I said at the beginning about change for a better world. So, so, you know, in your question, what am I looking for in a company that I, I want to invest in? I'm looking for a company where the the founder and the founding team and and the business is about a vision and a passion to change the world for the better, even if it's in just a little way. I'm not excited about a better way of ordering coffee. I enjoy coffee, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, I I don't drink coffee, but that's not why I'm not interested in it. Um, I'm not interested in a better way of ordering pizza, although that's it. One of our portfolio companies that's doing quite well is delivering pizza with drones. Um, So it has a a big contract with Domino's now to, to deliver pizza with drones, which is quite exciting. And that's the cutting edge technology there, the drone? Yes and no. Uh, so, as an example, Off. when that company came to us uh, quite some years ago, the founder came to me and said, drone hardware, commoditized, drone software, commoditized. But everybody's talking about how there's going to be drone delivery and no one knows how to make that business work. So his yep. proposition was figure out how to run the operating end of drone delivery and be ready with that as a, as a service or a product when the world finally says, yes, let's start delivering with drones. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. On that journey, he of course discovered, we all discovered that the commoditized drone technology was true, but it wasn't suitable for delivery. So they had to develop their own drone that was suited to the use case. Um, and similarly, uh, yes, there was software for flying a drone, but drone delivery is, is like running an airline, right? You've got to have air traffic control. You've got to know about your assets and where they are and what's going on and track everything in real time. And so there's actually a whole lot of new software and hardware that had to be developed and evolved and adapted from other sectors like the aerospace industry. Um, so there's quite a lot of new stuff that had to be done there. Uh, so yes, now it is um, you know, cutting edge technology still to get to the same end point, which is be able to show people there is a business that works for drone delivery. Because, of course, donors don't really care about the drones. They care about making pizzas and getting them in the hands of their customers. Yeah, correct. And and at at a price point, that
0: keeps them all viable. Yep. Yeah, I can see your passion as you talk about um, just the businesses that you're invested in. If you were to, just that first-time founder, that's that may be the main expert that's looking to come out into industry make a difference add some value make a change in the industry what advice would you give them where would they what advice would you give them if they're looking for funding or if they're looking from a starting point What yeah. some of the key things you've seen that really sets people up for success is probably a good way to ask um, well first of all only only do something if you're really passionate about it because it's a hard journey
1: and, and you're going to have to have something to sustain you through the challenges and the hard times. And and that's got to come from inside. You also want good support. So make sure that if you already have a partner, make sure that they want to come on this journey too. Because in my experience, um, when one partner decides they're going to become a startup founder, and that's not what the relationship contemplated, then that relationship usually breaks down. Um, And that's, you know, that's sad, but perhaps appropriate. The good news today, as opposed to, say, 20 years ago, is that today there is such a massive startup ecosystem that you'll probably find a new partner in that ecosystem who's more aligned with what you're trying to do. And here I'm talking about life partner, not business partner, although they could, of course, both be the same thing. Um, So be aware of the the personal social cost. Uh, um, Don't assume that the first thing you have to do is raise money. That's, that's probably one of the biggest lies that's out there at the moment. We've got think, all the government agencies and everybody, they all think and talk because none of them have really been at the coalface, that it's all about finding money and making it available to all the startups who want to get going. Um, and and the, one of the issues with that is there's not a lot of respect for the money in that model. Uh, But the other thing is there's no reason for that to be the case. The world is a different world. So when I started doing startups, nobody got paid till the company made enough money. Uh, Today um, most people won't start working for a startup unless they're getting paid a market rate salary. Maybe not top of market, but they want to get paid a a functional salary uh, and not take any real risk uh,
0: on that score. and that makes startups very expensive. So it's and it puts all the risk on the um, the capital, the VC, right? Uh,
1: well, it 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 shifts the nature, of, the dynamics
0: yeah. of how you share the risk.
1: Um, and uh, so, so think about what you're going to do. Think about why it's going to succeed. What what is going to be the core trick that that makes it succeed? The the secret sauce, the speciality, whatever it might be. So so just one sort of stat that's relevant here. The research that's being done says that the number one reason that startups fail at a 42% significance level, so that's the highest significance level, is market timing, meeting the market. Similarly, the research that says what is the number one reason that startups succeed, as it turns out, also at 42% significance level, is market timing so basically and and by the way as far as failure goes getting investment funding is the 16th most significant reason so it's way down there at about seven or eight percent significance level so it's not a significant reason for failure not getting funding it is a higher contributor to success so so there is that imbalance it's about um it's about the fifth reason i think for for success But the real issue here is market timing so when people are thinking about stepping out to to start something um, think about who you're trying to serve who is your customer and in today's world often you've got two things you've got a customer and a user customer is the one who actually pays you it may in fact particularly if you're going to do something consumer related you may in fact be focusing on your customers customer as your user so you need to understand the, the market structure, the market dynamics, and you need to understand what is going to motivate people. And one of the biggest mistakes I see is people who start out entirely based on a market analysis of one. That is, I've got this problem, I like this solution, therefore it'll work for everybody.
0: We've already seen that a couple of times, Anthony, haven't we? No, yes. I do that myself with all my ideas. <laughs> no, it's
1: it's perfectly human. I I understand it. But None of us is is perfectly matched to a market. And we need to be aware of that. Now, some of us will be much closer to the market. I am very atypical. I'm contrarian in so many ways. uh, It's very unlikely I'm ever going to be typical of a market, a consumer market or a business market. Um, And I know that, so I don't judge any of it by my response. but as a founder, you you have to be able to step outside yourself, and and see why what you want to offer is going to be valuable to people, and will it be valuable at the level you need? Will they pay enough for what you want to offer them to make this a viable business? And then the last thing I'll, I'll comment on is be aware that you there's always competition. I, the, I, I wish I had just one dollar for every time I've heard a founder say, "Oh, there are no competitors." Because there's a good chance that would be my biggest single return. Um, I'm pretty sure I'd have at least a million dollars for that. <laughs> I think we would too. Always competition, right? And so the way I describe it is there's competition for share of wallet. In other words, there is nobody standing out there with a, I'll open up my wallet and here I've got a $50 note and it's got Andrew's name on it. And I'm just waiting for Andrew to come along to sell me whatever he's going to sell me, and here's the $50 I'm going to spend with Andrew. That's not the way the world works. Every dollar in the wallet is being spent on something now. And if you want your share of that wallet, you have to get
0: something else out. You have to compete for your share of that wallet. Uh, Everyone has a pie to work with, as you would say, right? Right. There's an allocation, and then that allocation is going here, 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 or here. And competition like you said can be completely different category completely different than something else and then i have no money left to pay for your product so yeah there's a fair point and and that comes down to your customers
1: value system right not what you think is valuable what your customer thinks about it. customers buy benefits to them not features of your product but the benefits that they enjoy by using your product or service that's that's an old saw that's that's the way business has been taught for over 100 years but um it's amazing how hard it is for most new founders to really
0: understand and and relate to that as their core strategy gordon uh, jordan great summary there um it's been a pleasure having you on the devready podcast and i think we could go for hours just picking your brain because there's plenty of knowledge and depth and breadth of information there so really thank you for coming on uh, we're probably at the top of the hour so um jordan green from um melbourne angels effectively uh, do you also do any consulting or anything to support people in business or anything in that world uh well yes and no uh i i'm always
1: i'm always open to you know getting paid for my advice uh but i'm not
0: cheap <laughs> fair point well if anyone wants to find out more about um jordan jump on melbourne angels um their website, or Jordan Green on LinkedIn, just to learn a little bit more about him. But like I said, um, they run events every quarter, um, at Melbourne Angels, and um, uh, every like a- the
1: Every month, we have a networking lunch open to the whole community on the last Friday of every month except December. Um, and we have our training courses uh, five or six times a year, which uh, if you get on the, the mailing list from the website, you won't be inundated, you'll just get emails about the lunches and emails about the training courses. Um, and uh, and then we get involved in, in other things along the way as well. We do a lot of support for the ecosystem. You'll see our members turning up as speakers and judges and mentors and accelerators and all that sort of stuff.
0: A joy. I really appreciate you coming on the DevReady podcast. Thanks for sharing a bit more about you and your story and your background. It's uh, always good to, to share where you've come from and what you're up to today. So thank you again for your time. Well thank you Andrew and Anthony.
1: I really appreciate it. and. and keep up what you're doing it's it's really important thank you
0: it's been a pleasure oh, thanks we'll st-